At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Hello and welcome to our May edition of At the Foot of the Cross, monthly Bishops' Conference podcast, bringing you up to date with what's going on here at the Secretariat of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Now, I'm glad to say, of course, that I'm joined by Canon Christopher Thomas, who's our General Secretary, and we're going to look at a great many things, actually, but a few diary dates for you before we begin. Quite a lot coming up, actually. It's World Communications Day on the Sunday after the Ascension of the Lord, which is Sunday the 29th of May. We have just had, in fact, the World Day of Prayer for Survivors of Abuse, and that was on Tuesday the 17th of May. Day for Life we have coming up the 19th of June, so it's next month, but we will have Colette McGovern from our policy and research team just to talk to us a bit about the theme and obviously the importance of celebrating life from conception to natural end. Then it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years as the reigning monarch. That will be celebrated on the 4th and 5th of June and all Sunday Masses on on those days, uh, for the Sunday, of course. We'll have prayers for the Queen and you can find further details of that on our website, cbcew.org.uk. Many things in the diary. The Holy Land Coordination, which is a pilgrimage of prayer and persuasion where we stand alongside the Christians of the Holy Land. That is also in May from the 21st to the 26th, a slightly limited programme post-Covid. And and it's not something that usually happens in May, actually. It's usually something that happens in January. So we'll bring you up to date with that on our return. The World Meeting of Families, that's probably something that will come into our next podcast, but that's from the 22nd to the 26th of June. So it's extremely busy. But, Canon Christopher Thomas, we did look ahead to the plenary meeting, the historic plenary meeting in a sense, because it was the first one in Wales, in Cardiff, for some 18 years. Now that has happened. Yes, yes, we we were in Cardiff and uh, it was a very fruitful meeting. The bishops gathered at St David's Cathedral for daily mass and prayer. And then we used the fantastic resource of the Cardiff Cornerstone, which is directly opposite the cathedral, uh, for our meetings and for um, other events that we held during the week. And it was an excellent time to update the bishops about the um, role of Catholics in public life and uh, the role of our Catholic Church in Wales during that week, particularly in the wake of the appointment of Archbishop-elect and Bishop-elect O'Toole, because he becomes on the 20th of June the Archbishop of Cardiff, and then a few days later he will take possession of the See of Menevia, where he becomes the Bishop of Menevia as well. So it was important that uh, Bishop O'Toole there was able to see and survey the land, the land that he will be very much part of going forward. But one of the major things that we wanted to do was about this idea of of the church in Wales. Mm. And what was important to that was um, basically the Wednesday of the meeting, which a significant amount of time was taken up where we actually paid a visit to the Welsh Senedd, which is the Welsh uh, national government. We went to Cardiff Bay to the Senedd building itself, where we were given a very informative tour and a presentation of the work of the Senedd by uh, officials from the Senedd itself. Particularly interesting on the, on the way that Wales has representation, because there's a dual system unlike in in this country. So you will elect in your constituency, which are the same as the parliamentary constituencies, 
a Senedd member. But then there are regional areas that go over the top, as it were. So, for instance, my constituency is uh, is uh, Swansea West, but I'm also represented by four members of South West Wales, uh, which is uh, part of the representation system. So even though my Senedd member, particularly for the constituency, is Labour, I have two Conservative and two Plaid members who also represent me. Yeah. So that keeps a good accountability to the work of the Senedd. And all of the bishops came to the Senedd. We were welcomed in the Senedd chamber, in the in the public gallery, by the deputy presiding officer, which I think is quite unique. Mm. He stopped the debate, which was a very interesting one, on social cohesion and community. He stopped the debate to formally welcome the bishops who were up in the public gallery, all of whom had their headsets on because the speaker at the time was a Plaid Cymru a member of the Senedd uh, who was speaking in Welsh. And so, uh, and so uh, they were listening to the, the simultaneous translation. But it gave a good feeling for how that representation works. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening that day, we had a formal reception at Cardiff Castle where we had invited members of the Senedd to come. We had invited ecclesiastical uh, dignitaries and interfaith dignitaries from, from Wales as well, members of civic authority and other notable people from Cardiff and South Wales to come and meet informally with the bishops. And we were very, very pleased that Mark Drakeford, the first minister of Wales, came to the reception. He was uh, very gracious in his words of welcome to the bishops. Archbishop Stack, as the Archbishop of Cardiff, welcomed him and Cardinal Nichols responded to his speech where he spoke about how he was seeing Wales develop into a country in its own right, as it were, uh, with great aspirations as a place of welcome, as a place of innovation uh, and a cultural country as well. Other people who were there, the the, the former First Minister, Carwin James, was there. Mm. And uh, there were other ecclesiastical dignitaries, especially from Cateen, which is the equivalent of churches together in England. So it was a great opportunity for the bishops to actually spend time with these people in Wales. And there was a lovely little moment before we actually went into the castle. When you go into Cardiff Castle, which is in the middle of the town, we paused and went into the walls or, or part of the gatehouse because this was the holding cell for two of our martyrs, St. Philip Evans and St. John Lloyd, who were martyred in the late 1600s. They were held there the night before their martyrdom, which took place at Riverside in Cardiff. As it was the Feast of the English Martyrs, Archbishop Stack led prayers there and they had brought the statues from the cathedral to Cardiff Castle. And it was a very, very profound moment of linking our work today with the history of Catholicism in Wales and the witness given by the martyrs. So uh, it was a it was a really lovely moment that of the bishops praying together in small groups because obviously the holding cell isn't very big with the archbishop and bishop archbishop elect O'Toole as well to remember the witness of the martyrs as we went into that reception in Cardiff Castle. I thought that was very moving, you know. I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but um, and I should point this out for our listeners, seeing as they can't see these things. Mm. If you'd like to get a picture of what Canon Chris Thomas is talking about here, you can check our Flickr photo stream where we've got a great many images from, from various events, including the meeting with the First Minister. You'll see plenty of the goings-on. And that's flickr.com, F-L-I-C-K-R.com, slash Catholicism. So if you check that out, you'll see all those photo sets. Some of those pictures, of course, make it onto our website. 
that's where I did see that moment. I didn't know if it was scheduled or planned, but it, it, was, yes, it was very moving. It, it was planned, and it was something that Archbishop Stang very much wanted to include as part of, of the programme, because the, the martyrs, you know, we, we are very proud of our martyr tradition mm. in England and Wales, and uh, and we mustn't forget that there are Welsh martyrs as well. Of course. Uh, and, uh, and that was a lovely moment to remember those two martyrs uh, in that particular moment in their holding cell. And on the final night that we were there, we had a little bit of a gala dinner and we invited two particular guests. We invited uh, Rosaline Moriarty-Simmons, who is the Lord High Sheriff of the Vale of Glamorgan, Mm. who is quite a remarkable woman. And uh, she was delighted to be there with us that evening. And we also invited Lord David Ellis-Thomas, who was the first presiding officer of the Senedd when it was the Welsh Assembly. He featured very much in my growing up in Wales because he was the leader of Plaid Cymru for many years and I, I was delighted to be able to have a conversation with him and uh, actually to have a photograph I with him saw as well. That picture. <laughs> I saw that picture. Very nice too. Yes. Now, look, we'll talk about some of the key things. There were a couple of uh, statements off the back of the That's bishop's right. plenary, which we'll certainly go into, particularly one which I think deserves some attention, to be honest. But I did want to ask you just quickly, did you get a sense, because it's different, it's not Hinsley Hall in Leeds where the bishops often meet, do you think they enjoyed the Welshness of this particular gathering? Oh, yes, uh, very much so. I mean, Archbishop Stack had prepared a little goodie bag for all of the bishops when they arrived, including a packet of Welsh cakes so they could <laughs> nibble on them just in case they were feeling a bit hungry. But in fact, the provision of, of wonderful food by um, Spiro Borg, who works with Archbishop Stack at the Cornerstone, it was a marvellous occasion. They all received also a little Welsh dragon made from Welsh steel as a gift as well as they left Wales to remind them of the visit because this is important. We hadn't been there for 18 years, and I think what we realised is that we have to now commit to make a Welsh visit part of our regular agenda every so often in the life of the Bishops' Conference because we can't leave it another 18 years to go back to Wales. Absolutely right. Now, look, I did want a quick word on the statement that we put out talking about what is often called the Sunday obligation. And we've had COVID, of course. We've had a couple of years where things have been different. We've had occasions where, sadly, we we haven't been able to be in in the presence of of the Blessed Sacrament and and have Mass, which is obviously at, at the heart of our faith. I'm going to put this to you and take me to task over language or whatever you will, but I get a lot of emails in and they pretty much say the same thing. Will the obligation to attend Sunday Mass be restored and active from Pentecost, which is, of course, Sunday the 5th of June. What's important about this is that uh, obligation is something that comes from um, within. I always say to people, I'm a great fan of Rumpole of the Bailey, and you remember Leo McKern as Rumpole uh, having very, very sharp arguments with uh, Lord Justice Graves and uh, Judge Bullivant. He always used to say at the end when he'd been given a telling up, I'm obliged, my lord. The obligation is a gratitude, is a thanksgiving. And so when we talk about obligation, it's not a stick to be beaten with, but it's a wellspring from within that we desire to be at one with God, to worship him, to come together as a community, to be supportive of each other in our faith journey and to be a sign of witness in the world. 
I always think there was a lovely image that was given some time ago when we were looking at the new missile. There was the image that was given of the church gathering on a Sunday and then dispersing, gathering on a Sunday and dispersing. is like the heartbeat of the life of the church. And that's why that sense of obligation, I think, is more within rather than without, as it were. And so when we talk about the restoration of the Sunday obligation, the bishops never formally suspended the obligation. What they said was that it could not be fulfilled and it could not be fulfilled absolutely. In the first case, our churches were closed. Therefore... It couldn't be fulfilled. And we've been reviewing it, as we've said, through the other documents that we've put out. Remember, this is the fourth statement on this that we've put out. The first was called the Day of the Lord. Second, Sunday, it is our day. The third was Honouring Sunday. And now we have this invitation from the bishops of England and Wales to returning to Mass at Pentecost. What we've said in the other three is that we are still reviewing the situation and we do not feel at this time this was said in the former statements, that that obligation could be fulfilled by everybody in its absolute sense. But what we realise now is because the government have lifted all COVID restrictions and our ways of life are going back to normal. I mean, I went to the cinema on Saturday and it was full and there was no social distancing and nobody had a mask on. It was just like 2019 when I went to the cinema. We are now saying that we feel that the obligation, that desire within to go back to church and to be part of that worshipping community, to worship Almighty God, to support each other in faith and to be a sign of faith in God in the world can now be fulfilled in that absolute sense. But there's a caveat. And the caveat has always been there. If you are prevented from attending Mass for legitimate reasons, so for instance, if you're ill and you can't go to Mass, or if you're caring for somebody that requires that care and you can't go to Mass, or if you're travelling and you can't go to Mass, or if there's what we call legitimate fear, and there are people who are vulnerable still, you know, they have health issues, underlying health issues, you know, they are still fearful about going out and about in the world, then that is not a breaking of obligation. You are not in mortal sin if those things occur. Right. But we are encouraging everybody now to come back by Pentecost Sunday to celebrate Mass as we would have done before the pandemic occurred. So for those very reasons, and I'm trying not to be an ignoramus here, is it because that central tenet of free will is involved that it's not a case of strong-arming people and saying you must go to Mass? We want people to want to go to Mass, don't we? That's exactly right. And it comes from that innate desire within us Remember, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. By our baptism, the image of Christ is, as it were, pushed out and it becomes a guiding principle of our lives. And when we cooperate with grace, there should be a desire within each one of us to actually make that expression of faith. And for us, the expression par excellence is to be part of that worshipping community each week on a Sunday in our parish communities. We go, first of all, to give thanks to Almighty God in gratitude for all the gifts that he's given us. We support each other by our very presence there. So there's a horizontal dimension, as it were. We gather as a sign of us in the world. I mean, I think I said last time, you know, I always used to have at the Easter Vigil a moment where the 48 bus used to stop outside my church and they'd all look at us and they were thinking, what what, what are those Catholics up to now? Well, when we gather and when we leave, we are physically there and people can see us and we become a sign. Why are they there? What are they doing? Questions that begin the journey of faith in people's hearts and minds. So our presence together is really important. We're not turning off live stream. Because we know that, and it's evidenced in what we've had over the last two years, live streaming has been a great help to people who had been a bit disenfranchised from their parishes, the sick, you know, the housebound, those people who can't go to Mass. 
but now they can actually engage with their parish communities through live streaming. And then the beauty is, and we give thanks to God for all of the many generous people in our parishes, like ministers of Holy Communion and house visitors, they keep them connected not only through the live stream but in that physical way as well. So there's, there's two senses of connection there, which we didn't have before. Absolutely. So from Pentecost, we'd really like it to be as it was pre-pandemic. Yes, yeah, that would that would that would be beautiful. But as you quite rightly said, everybody can make a choice. But the bishops have have now said in this statement, returning to mass at Pentecost, an invitation from the bishops of England was an invitation. Now, because the the the, the COVID restrictions have now disappeared, we should be able to return to mass just as we're returning to those other parts of our lives, like going to the cinema, as I said going to the theatre, going to restaurants, all of those things that were taken away from us because of the pandemic, going to Mass is now available to all. Fantastic. Now, of course, when you go to church, thankfully, you do get the Word of God. Indeed. And I know that you have a nice little scriptural reflection for us. Well, yes, I'm always very taken with the book of the Apocalypse. It's always had a great sense of mystery to me. It's not the easiest book to understand. But there's this wonderful passage in chapter 21 which talks about the new heaven and the new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had disappeared. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, as beautiful as a bride all dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice call from the throne. You see this city? Here God lives among men. He will make his home among them. They shall be his people and he will be their God. His name is God with them. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or sadness. The world of the past has gone. Then the one sitting on the throne spoke. Now I am making the whole of creation new. And I love that image. I love it because it ties in with the bit of the the seasons that we're in at the moment. I mean, I love the Easter season anyway, but I don't know about you, James, but I struggle in the winter with um, seasonal affective disorder. When it starts to get dark, (laughs) I struggle. You and me both. And at the moment, things are light. You know, the, the days are very long. When you wake up in the morning, it's light. It's not that darkness anymore. And so the brightness of the city of God is something that we should marvel about because this vision of newness, of rebirth and of permanence is because it's a work of God that in many respects our natural mind couldn't even comprehend. But we can comprehend it in hope, Easter hope, because what God is doing here is something new. One of the phrases that people have said to me, and they never really understand it, there's no longer any sea. Why is there no sea in the holy city? And that's because the sea is a place of chaos and disorder. And now because God is drawing everything to himself and he is the source of all order and being, there's no need for sea. Because the sea is the place of hiddenness, of of chaos, of darkness. Remember, the spirit hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation and drew order out of the chaos. So there's no chaos or disorder or hiddenness in this bright eternity that God is creating for us. And that's a real source for hope. In the darkness of the world that we live in, where we see so many things that are, are just so contrary to what we actually feel is right for humanity... We only have to look at conflict. I mean, with stories coming out of Ukraine today. We must never forget the difficulties and, and the famine in Yemen. All of these areas, even Jerusalem, where there is unrest at the moment. You know, this is not what God has planned for the world. God has planned for this beautiful new creation that he's calling us to be part of. And what's lovely about the city is that God is at the centre. There's no need for a temple because God's there. And there's no need either for sun because God is the light that illumines everybody. And this then is a contrast to the gospel. 
because the gospel begins with Judas leaving. And if you read the Bible at that point, it said when Judas left, night had fallen. And that's not just the physical night. It's the darkness of what was happening. And yet Jesus shines in the heart of his disciples, teaching them about this new commandment to love God and to love each other as a light, because that light is the centre of this new city. It's already there in the very teaching of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that the way that you shine this light in the world is by living as I have lived, how I embodied that teaching of my Father, where we love everything that has been made. And when we love, we do it in a real gritty way. It's not something saccharine or self-indulgent. It's self-sacrificing and it pours out of ourselves into the world. And so the church as an image of the New Jerusalem is really important because we have to be that shining light in the world. We have to be a shining light that draws people to itself. Coming back to what we've just said about returning to Mass at Pentecost, we know that there has been darkness in the church. We can't get away from that but we've got to do everything that we can in order to shine like bright stars as St Paul puts it in one of his letters but it's being citizens of this new Jerusalem this city coming down out of heaven not something in the future but a hopeful vision of now. Well that was a beautiful reflection and of course you're talking light and darkness we're talking about the new Jerusalem but we we have to be honest and say that there are dark places in the church that light needs to be shone upon isn't it? Absolutely and this week we've celebrated the day of prayer for people who have suffered sexual abuse in the church. The origin of this comes directly from Pope Francis. He asked each bishop's conference to choose a day to focus on prayer for survivors and victims of sexual abuse for their families and for their communities. And this is a universal initiative across the whole world. And because I like to think of it, because it occurs not on a singular day, but on different days in different lands, I always think of it as a, as it could be considered as a healing wave of prayer across the church, bringing healing of the wounds inflicted by abuse on individuals and communities by allowing us to focus our prayer on that issue and to pray for conversion of heart and welcome and support for those who have suffered. And originally, the bishops have chosen the Friday before Palm Sunday as our day of prayer, but now it's held on the Tuesday of the fifth week of Easter. And this is because it was expressed to us by victims and survivors of abuse that this is not a penitential day, but a day of support for individuals and communities, which is rooted in this Easter season of hope and new life. And so this will be the permanent day in England and Wales. And we are very blessed because we have a group of people called the Isaiah Journey. And this group of people made up of religious, lay people, um, victims and survivors of abuse and supported and directed by Bishop David Oakley of Northampton. This group of people provide resources for this particular day. Even though we think of it as a day, these resources can be used at any time. And they have a purpose. And the purpose of the Isaiah journey is seeking truth, bringing hope and finding healing, all three of which are found in the prophecies of Isaiah and all three really relate to the situation within our church of those who have suffered at the hands of uh, those who have perpetrated sexual abuse. And so the resources which are on our website Mm. are available to everybody. But there's one which I found particularly beautiful, and that's the focus on the Paschal Candle. I love Paschal candles. I think they they should be big, they should be bold, because they're the image of the risen Christ. And when the Paschal candle is lit at the Easter Vigil, and there's that singular flame which slowly is dispersed through the church, 
the darkness is lightened. And a really dark church, I was in Westminster Cathedral this year for the Easter Vigil. Westminster Cathedral was transformed as these little candles were all lit from that singular flame. And so there's that focus on the Paschal candle is really beautiful. First of all, it focuses on the cross because the cross is on the candle, the symbol of the passion and death of the Lord. And then there's the Alpha and the Omega, that God is the God of all time and all seasons. Then there's the year, 2022 this year, and it talks about the passing of time and how the passing of time can be a positive thing, how it can be a very negative thing for people, and how do we reflect on time within the timelessness of God's love. And then the candle is pierced by wounds, by the incense grains. But just as Christ in his resurrected form bore the wounds of his passion, so the candle bears glorious wounds because they are wounds that brought about our redemption and that new life. And then ultimately the flame itself, that light that shines in the darkness. And we have to accept and recognise the ill and the sin and the suffering that abuse has caused in the church. And we have to be transformed by that light. And we have to commit ourselves, as we are doing, to making the church a safe place for everybody and also to engage with those who have suffered at the hands of those who have ministered in the church to ensure that they are supported in their journey from darkness into light and from light into life. Yeah, absolutely right. And for those that want to find those resources, as you just said there, Canon Chris, Prayer for Survivors of Abuse 2022. You can either put that in to the search function on cbcew.org.uk or if you separate it with hyphens, that is the direct URL. So once you've done cbcew.org.uk slash prayer hyphen for hyphen survivors hyphen of hyphen abuse hyphen 2022. But because that's a mouthful, if you were to just put that into the search function, that that will come up and you can look at those resources. And in fact, listen to those resources. One that moved me greatly, actually, was the reflection on Psalm 121 with the survivor's reflection in there. Deeply moving. Mm -hmm. And I think both priests, laymen and women, this is a joint effort in the sense that that we must all mark this and we must all take part and pray. Absolutely. And and the, you know, that, that psalm is a psalm of hope. I lift up my eyes to the mountains from where comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And God is ever present. That's the the, the whole thing about the psalm. He doesn't sleep like we sleep because he's God. And he sees all things and he guards those who he loves. And so it's a wonderful psalm. and, 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 And that reflection is very moving, yeah. And although, of course, the the voice has been changed quite Mm. rightly and appropriately, I think it was an act of of charity and generosity for that particular survivor to to share the story. Yeah, and we have to be be attentive listeners to these stories because Mm. we can only change if we know the pain and the hurt that they have suffered and we have open hearts and open ears to listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a journey that goes on, but um, thanks ever so much for giving me your time and uh, join us in June, if you would. I will. Indeed. Thanks very much. Right. Well, we're not done just yet on At the Foot of the Cross, because I promised you a little bit earlier that we would talk about Day for Life, the day in the church's calendar, a very important day, committed to upholding the dignity of all human life from conception to natural death. And this year that's celebrated on Sunday, the 19th of June. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Colette McGovern from our policy and research team. Colette, how are you doing? Hi, James. I'm good, thank you. Now, you know what? A good place to start before we talk about the theme, which obviously focuses on care for for older people. I think the obvious question is, 
what exactly is a day for life? So I think I'd like to say it does what it says on the tin. It's a day and it's about life, but its origins are really about 30 years ago. So Pope John Paul II at one of his consistory of cardinals, a suggestion was put to him that each year a day should be set aside in different countries to celebrate the gift of life. And he wrote about this in Evangelium Vitae, his encyclical on the gospel of life. And he really encouraged Episcopal conferences to hold this day once a year. And its primary purpose was to foster within individuals, families, the church and civil society, a recognition of the meaning and the value of human life from conception to natural death. And he asked in particular that attention was paid to the issues of abortion and euthanasia, but also other issues as and when the occasion and circumstances arise in different countries. Now, last year, I think appropriately, to be fair, we were in the thick of the COVID pandemic, of course, and we looked at the sick and the dying, but also there was a an assisted suicide bill, wasn't there? So there was a very particular focus to our work. And some might say, of course, that care for the elderly is a particularly appropriate theme once again, because we're emerging from the pandemic now, God willing, and the elderly were kind of at the heart of what you might say in inverted commas was the problem. They were more vulnerable. They had to shield. The virus attacked them more aggressively than it did other members of society. Do you think there is that need now, therefore, to to really show and uphold the value of, of our older people having had such a hard time for two years? Yeah, I think you're right in what you say there. I think the Pope would have said that we cruelly abandoned our elderly during the pandemic. And I think we're sitting on a situation in Europe and across the world where I think by 2050, 2 billion of the world's population, so one in five people, will be over the age of 60. And that raises various challenges for us as a society, for us as a church, for our communities, within our families. And I think the pandemic really highlighted that. And, you know, I suppose the question it raises is, should old people have to apologise for longer life or should we honour the gift that they are to society? And that's something that the Pope has really focused on over the last couple of months. And in fact, for most of his pontificate, that old age and long life is a blessing to society. And I think we have a need, a pressing pastoral need within the church and also within wider society to try and recover some of that narrative and to see our elderly as a gift to society as well as you know, needing of our care and our time and resources. Absolutely. And of course, popes tend not to be particularly young men, do they? And what, what I found very interesting, and not just because Pope Francis at the moment is is using his Wednesday audiences to, to impart some catechesis on older people, but he always says we, doesn't he? He's sort of almost talking to his fellow older people. It's not a sort of I'm the Pope and I'm in this bubble. He's very much sort of, whether he's talking to grandparents, whether he's talking to older people, he's sort of sharing his own frailty as well, isn't he? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And I think in more recent weeks, we've seen the difficulties that he's had in terms of his knee and, you know, even being wheeled into audiences in a wheelchair. It's quite a statement to a world that is very keen to discard the elderly, the disabled, any sort of fragility or distress that people might manifest. We don't really have a capacity for dealing with that. And I think the Pope to stand in solidarity 
and to witness to that in his own life, I think that's a powerful catechesis as well as the various audiences that he's currently giving on the theme of old age as a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. And Bishop John Sherrington in his message for Day for Life, we're talking about older people not being a burden, but we we need to value them, don't we? We need to value wisdom. We need to value experience. We need to value knowledge. And it's something that's invaluable and can be can be passed on. But do you think we've lost that as a society a bit? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things we live in a culture that prioritises youthfulness, whether that's anti-aging creams or images on Instagram and eternal youth is something we seem to chase after and don't really understand the value of old age. And I think the Pope would probably see that we have relegated the elderly to the margins, into care homes, out onto the peripheries. And they have something very beautiful to offer to society. And I think he's sort of seeking to reclaim that. And I, I would say You know, you can look at some of the encouragement from the Pope in terms of building bridges between young and old people as what can young people do for the elderly? You know, maybe they visit a care home, maybe they spend time with their grandparents, you know, maybe they get involved in a parish project that's linked, um, you know, there to support the elderly. But I think the other question that the Pope makes us like reflect on is, you know, what can the elderly offer to us within society? And one of my favourite images that he's used consistently throughout his pontificate is that of a tree bearing fruit, that the elderly are the roots of a tree with their wisdom, experience, their strength, and that the young are flowers on that tree. I think that's a very powerful image for me. And if the young are connected to those roots, they will flourish and they will grow and society will flourish as a consequence. But if they're cut off from those roots, then we really are in big trouble as a society. So I think that's quite a unique take that the Pope has on the role of the elderly and sort of their place within the church. They're not just passive recipients of our care and our concern, but they're actually like active protagonists in our community and sort of what place or priority do we give that role and that vocation and mission that the elderly have. Yeah, very well said. I like that analogy, the tree and the fruit. Now look, Day for Life is Sunday the 19th of June, but obviously this is a a culture of, of upholding older people that we'd encourage year round. But then for those in our in our pews, those saying, well, what can I do on, on Day for Life? How can I take part? What would you say to them? Well, there are a couple of ways. So, you know, looking at the message that Bishop John, our lead Bishop for Life Issues, has put out, distributing that, maybe making sure it's available in parishes, praying for older persons and for a greater culture of life. Donations can be made to the Day for Life fund as well, which supports a number of projects around the country. The other thing that I think is quite useful, if a parish wanted to do something practically, CSAN have a resource toolkit on how to reach out to the elderly in our parishes. That's quite a very practical sort of piece of work and a helpful tool. Yeah, very well said. And and actually, just in case you don't know out there, CSAN is the Caritas Social Action Network, CSAN, csan.org.uk, if you want to go onto their site and look for that, that very good toolkit. And they were good during the pandemic as well. And if you want more on this year's Day for Life, go to our website, cbcew.org.uk slash dfl22. And that will take you straight there. Read Bishop John Sherrington's message, as Colette said. And yeah, do keep our older people in your prayers on Sunday, the 19th of June. Colette, thank you so much. Appreciate that. And 
I do hope you'll be joining us on future podcasts to, to keep us up to date with your work. Thank you, James. Thanks very much indeed, Colette. Colette McGovern there from our policy and research team. Very good to learn more about this year's Day for Life, such an important calendar date in the life of the church. Let's remember, please, to pray for older people on Sunday, June the 19th. And of course, if you can support our work in any way in upholding the dignity of every human life from conception to natural death, that would be marvellous. And your support, as always, is very gratefully received. A reminder once again of the short website address for that. It's on our website, cbcew.org.uk slash dfl22. You'll find all the various resources for Day for Life and the ability to donate should you wish to do so. Right, that's it for this month's At the Foot of the Cross. There'll certainly be much to talk about in June, not least the fact that we'll be back from the Holy Land, from the Holy Land Coordination Pilgrimage, so we'll give you a little update on that. And I'll be joined, as always, by Canon Christopher Thomas, our General Secretary. So we'll see you next month. Bye for now.